Our topic tonight, a very important topic, a very misunderstood topic uh, often, and uh, that's why it's very important, especially as we understand God and, and, and the scriptures. So we're going to look at the longest Shabbat, or the longest Sabbath uh, in, on record, uh, also known as the millennium. And so uh, we've been longing for peace, peace in the Middle East, but for too long we haven't been able to experience that. It's just been one tragedy after another. We long for shalom, right? Shalom, we greet ourselves, we say hello and goodbye, both with shalom. Uh, Jerusalem is the, the city, of, city of peace, and right in the name itself, and yet that city has not experienced peace for very long periods of time in, uh, in its history. But, uh, but God promises a time of peace, and uh, before peace, often comes trouble. We've been looking at the book of Daniel. So look, Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book, right? So written in the book, we've talked about the book, the books of life, right? The books of heaven, the, the Yom Kippur, the books of judgment being sealed in God's book. And so those that are sealed in God's book, they will be delivered at that last time, at that time, uh, just after the events of Daniel chapter 11, which we're right at the very end of, just a few verses left there. And if you missed that study, then go to shalomadventure.com and in the search, just type in Daniel 11, and you'll see the, the various topics on that, the various sermons on that. At that time, there'll be a time of trouble. But in the midst of the trouble, God will deliver his people. Verse 2, same chapter, Daniel 12. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. So we see these two parties. There's only going to be two parties. Two parties on earth and two parties in history. And be those that are asleep in the dust, those who have died, also just two parties among all those that have died. Among all that have died, all that are sleeping in the grave, they shall all awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Two avenues, two paths, and that's all there is. John chapter 16, verse 2. The time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he's offering God service. And in Psalm 119, verse 126, it is time for you to act, O Lord, for they have regarded your law as void. And so in this time of trouble, it's not atheists per se that are attacking God's people, but those who think they're doing God's service, professing to believe in God, and yet denying the law of God, or changing the law of God and thus denying the law of God will attempt to God, kill God's people, but God will step in, Michael will stand up, and will deliver those that are written in the book through that time. John chapter 10, verse 14, I am the good shepherd. Other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. 
God is gathering his people under his truth, under his word, under his righteousness, under his banner, under his law, and gathering them together. And he wants us to be unified in his word. Not unified just for the sake of being unified, but unified in his word as one shepherd, under one shepherd as one flock together. Not just everyone just doing their own thing and out there and there and there, and there but coming together, again, united in him, in his truth, in his word. And that's what he's going to do here in these last days. And he's already doing that. He's going to bring it all together. So we'll have that one party under following this one good shepherd, following the Lamb of God. And then on the other side, Revelation 13, 3, all the world marveled and followed the beast. They worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. And so you got one group following the good shepherd, following the Lamb. And you got this other following the dragon and following the beast. Only two parties that are alive and only two parties that are dead. Revelation 12, verse 17, And the dragon was enraged and went uh, with the woman and went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Yeshua the Messiah. So you got the dragon and the beast and all that are following him, going to kill, thinking they're doing God's service, going to make war against those on the other side that are following the good shepherd, following the Lamb of God, who have keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Yeshua the Messiah. A unique balance of both those two specific identities combined that have the commandments of God and are keeping the commandments of God as God wrote them, keeping the commandments of God as written in stone, and have faith in Yeshua the Messiah. There's some that have faith in Yeshua the Messiah but don't have the law of God. There's others that have the law of God but don't have the faith in Yeshua the Messiah. But it's that unique combination that the devil hates the worst and who has his radar on and his attack on to make his final, last, enraging war against that time of trouble. So that's what's happening as we lead up to the millennium. That's where we're at now. The top part, the green part, is God's people getting ready, taking the gospel to the world, unifying together in his word, receiving the faith of Yeshua, and through that faith in Yeshua, receiving the spirit and living out and keeping the law of God. And then on the bottom of the chart, we've got the pink. We've got those that are following the beast and worshiping the dragon, thinking they're doing God's service. And we have the time of the tribulation and the mark of the beast and the plagues coming down upon them. In verse, Matthew 24, verse 14, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. The last sign, that's what really God's waiting on. That's it. That's it. And that'll bring about all the rest of it. He's waiting for us to take the gospel to the world. So again, there's only a very few verses that haven't been fulfilled in Daniel and Revelation and Matthew 24. Just a few verses, and this is one of them, for us to take the gospel to the world. And then the end will come. And as the World comes to an end for the sign of the Son of Man coming in all the glory of his Father and of his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. So he's doing this judgment process, and then he's able to come, and he's able to give 
all according to his works. And the wages, the works, the rewards, the wages of sin, the rewards of sin is death, and the gift or the reward for following him, the gift of God is eternal life through Yeshua the Messiah. The two rewards, he comes again, two parties, two groups, and he comes with his rewards according to our works, according to the faith that's brought about either godly works or a false faith that's brought about man-made works. Another parable in the book of Matthew, in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, gather together first the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them. And so one group is taken during the time of harvest at the very end, take them and gather them and to, as tares and burn them. What's one group? And then the other group, gather the wheat into my barn. Again, just two groups. One gathered into God's barn simultaneously and one being burned. Just like other parables, the, the sheep and the goats separated simultaneously, the good fish and bad fish separated simultaneously, several parables given in the scriptures relating to this. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Similar as we read in Daniel chapter uh, 12, verse 1. All that are in the graves will hear his voice. And they will come forth. They're sleeping. They will awake and come forth and have, and they that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. So two resurrections mentioned there, two groups, those that receive everlasting life and those that receive damnation. The resurrection of life and the resurrection of of damnation. Now these two resurrections, as we'll see as we look at more text, are bookends on either side of this thousand year period of time, also known as the millennium. They become bookends to that, these two resurrections. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the shofar of God, and the dead in Messiah will rise first, we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air, in the clouds. We meet together, gather together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So he comes at that loud shout, that last trumpet on Yom Kippur. Judgment is done. Judgment is completed. The books are sealed. He's able to come and he comes and he raises the dead. Those that are part of the first resurrection. He says, those who are dead in Messiah shall rise first. Right? So we just read that there's two resurrections, the resurrection of life. Well, the first one, as it says here, the dead in Messiah rise first. Right? And then we which are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air, in the clouds. Right? Pretty clear, pretty plain. Right? He gathers us together, he raises them, gathers us with them and takes us to meet the Lord in the air. John chapter 14, verse 1. Where do we go when we meet him in the air? Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you, that where I, when I come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. All right, so when he comes again, he takes us 
to those mansions that he's preparing for us, that we will be where he is. Both those that he raised from the dead, the righteous, those that have done good to resurrection of life, and those that are alive and worshiping the lamb and following the good shepherd. Revelation 20, verse 5, calls this the first resurrection. As we read in verse 1 Thessalonians 4, the dead in Messiah will rise first. And so we saw two resurrections. This one's referred to as the first resurrection. Now, if there's a first, what else has there to be? A second, that's right. You can't have a first without a second. Right? Otherwise, you just say there is a resurrection. Right? But you say a first resurrection, you've got to have a second one in relation to that. So we're talking now about that first resurrection, the resurrection that takes the people to heaven with those that are alive and remain, and uh, those that have done good, those that have followed the Lamb. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection, over such the second death has no power. So we want to be blessed, right? We want to be part of that first resurrection, or be alive and remain until he comes, one or the other. And over such, the second death has no power. Now, if there's a second death, what else had there to be? First a first death. That's right. There's, a, there's a two deaths that need to take place, right? And, and uh, now, if we are alive and remain until he comes, we would have still experienced a first death. What would that first death be? Death to self. Right? We all need to die. We all need to die to self. And so the righteous that... Uh, they're in their graves. Already, they've died that first death, but they also died that spiritual death to self. And thus, the second death has no power over them. And we'll see a little bit more what this second death is in a few more verses. So, this takes us to the beginning of the millennium, the beginning of the thousand years. It kicks off with the second advent, the second coming of the Lord, which is ignited by, with the first resurrection, right? So, I will come and I will take you to where I am, right? So when he comes in all his glory, with the glory of his Father, the dead and Messiah will rise first, right? So he's coming again, and the first resurrection takes place. And that begins that clock ticking on that thousand years. And so that's what happens to the righteous. We which are alive and remain with them, gathered up and meet the Lord in the air. Thus the righteous are in heaven. What about the lost? What about the wicked? Well, that's a good question. I'm glad you asked that. Let's look at some text that says about that. As lightning, Matthew 24, verse 27, as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered. So here again, still Matthew 24, chapter, this theme of the last day events and the Lord coming, right? So as lightning comes from the east and from the west, so also the coming of the Son of Man, right? So talking about his coming, talking about that second coming, the second heaven, he's coming. And then wherever the carcass is, why is he talking about carcasses? Why is he talking about coming and then all of a sudden these carcasses and, e and eagles gathering and eating these carcasses? Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of of his coming. So this brightness, like lightning from the east to the west, the brightness of his coming destroys the wicked. The breath of his mouth destroys the wicked. And thus they become carcasses 
on the face of the earth for the eagles to gather and eat, or vultures, really, maybe more accurate. Some of the other things Yeshua said, as in the days of Lot and as in the days of Noah, so also shall be the coming of the Son of Man. What happened in the days of Lot? Simultaneously, two groups, Lot and his two daughters being delivered and Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed and burned with the brightness of God's fire coming down on them. In the days of Noah, Noah and his family being delivered and the rest of humanity on this earth destroyed with the flood simultaneously taking place. In Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 33, and at that day, the slain of the Lord shall be from one end of the earth even to the other end of the earth. They shall not be lamented, nor gathered, nor buried. They shall become refuse on the ground. So the earth filled with carcasses, from one end of the earth to the other, the slain of the Lord, at that time, on that day. And they're not lamented, they're not gathered, they're not buried. Why not? There's nobody left to bury them. The wicked are all dead, and the righteous are taken to heaven. So they're left here, they're left on this earth. They're left just rotting there, Refuge on the earth for the carcasses, as carcasses for the, for the vultures to come and eat. Brightness of his coming, a lightning from the east to the west, slays them, the righteous taken to heaven. Right? Lots of texts all throughout the Bible. Lots of different books of the Bible saying the same type of thing. So the, simultaneously, the righteous are taken to heaven and the wicked are slain and remain there for a time. What are the conditions on the earth during that time? That's a good question. I'm glad you asked. So what is the Bible going to tell us? What happens on the earth? I beheld the earth. And indeed, it was without form and void. And the heavens, they had no light. I beheld the mountains. And indeed, they trembled. And all the hills moved back and forth. What does that sound like? I beheld the earth. And indeed, it was without form and void. What does that sound like? Genesis. Sounds like Genesis, right? Without form, void, looking at the earth. But the text continues. I beheld, and indeed there was no man. All the birds of the heavens had fled. I beheld, and indeed the fruitless land was a wilderness, and all its cities were broken down. Well, that's not Genesis. There were no cities there in the, before the creation of the world. But he's going to revert it back to that state when, the text continues, at the presence of the Lord by his fierce anger. So at the presence of the Lord, at the coming of the Lord, he's going to turn this earth back to without form and void, back to a desolate place, the righteous in heaven and the wicked dead. So that the earth can experience its rest. Cities are desolate. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. Revelation 20, verse 1 and 2. So the devil is bound for this thousand years. And that word that he says comes down and 
binds him into a bottomless pit. The Greek word is abyspos, which is the same that's translated in the Septuagint for Genesis, where it says without form and void. So he's bound to this very place. He's bound to this very earth. He's bound to this place that be, has become again without form and void, back to this bottomless pit with nothing to do. And he's bound with these chains. And I don't necessarily know if they're physical chains per se, as more of chains of circumstances, right? I'm all tied up, we say. I'm real busy, I'm all tied up, I can't get away. Right? He's tied up by, by nothing, nothing to do. What does Satan love to do 24-7? What has he been doing since Adam and Eve? Tempting and lying and murdering. and He's got no one to murder, he's got no one to tempt. He's got nothing to do except sit around in this desolate area. We looked at Leviticus chapter 16 with Yom Kippur and the theme of Yom Kippur and the goat. He shall, the goat shall carry on it all their iniquities into an inaccessible region. Right? Just like the devil here, just sitting in this without form, void, desolate earth. Just the city's broken down and nothing to do, no one to tempt, no one to harass. He has all this time to think about what it was like when he was back in heaven. He's been so busy, he probably hasn't had time to think. He probably doesn't want to think about that right now. He's so busy tempting and coordinating the evil angels, but then he's got a thousand years to remember the time in heaven, to remember what he gave up, to remember what he lost, to remember what he turned his back on, and to look at what his results are. Nothing but a destroyed, desolate earth. Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 21. To fulfill the word of the Lord by Jeremiah, the land had enjoyed her Sabbath. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Shabbat. It's a reference here to the 70 years that we were captive in Babylon. And the land was basically without enough farmers to farm it. And the farmland remained desolate for those 70 years. And he's saying that's a fulfillment of the prophecy because we hadn't let the land receive its sabbatical rest that we were commanded to let it do. So God gave it a sabbatical rest and bound us up in Babylon for those 70 years and then brought us back. And that's what it's saying, so that the earth received its Sabbath. And that's what he's doing with the thousand years. He's letting the earth sit for 6,000 years. We've been destroying it not letting it rest, and God says, I'm going to give it rest. I'm going to let it receive that one-seventh of a rest that it needs, that 1,000 for the 6,000 that you trampled it underfoot, that longest Sabbath. Very interesting. Now, of course, all our quotes have been from the Bible, but I have a couple quotes here, three quotes from, from the Babylonian Talmud, and again, we don't base our faith on anything other than the Bible. But it's interesting when other things match up with the Bible. Let's take a look at these. A rabbi, Katina, said, 6,000 years shall the world exist, and 1,000, the seventh, it shall be desolate, as it is written, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. Just like what we've been reading. The Tana Devai Elahu teaches, the world is to exist 6,000 years. In the first 2,000, there was desolation. 
2,000 years the Torah flourished, and the next 2,000 years is the Messianic era. So 2,000 years until Moses, and then the law being written on stone, the desolate without the law. I mean, the law was there, but not written in stone. And, but then God gives them. We have 2,000 years of the Torah the, written out, five books, and then 2,000 years of the Messianic age. Rabbi Hannah be Tefillah. And the Holy One, blessed be He, will renew His world only after 7,000 years. So 6,000 years, we've been trampling it. 1,000 years, it'll lay fallow. And then only after the 7,000th year will He renew it. And that's what we're going to see the rest of Scriptures. Now let's go back to Scriptures. Well, Satan bound for the chain for the 1,000 years, but the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. So we saw in the other text, they die with the brightness of his coming, with the glory of the Lord, like lightning from east to the west, come carcasses on the earth, the earth's filled with the wicked, from one end of the earth to the other, and they remain dead, they, the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years are finished, right? So what does that mean? If they live not again until, right? If there's an until there, right? They live not again until, then what happens after the until? They live again, right? If they live not again until something, and then they live again after that, right? So they live not again until the thousand years are finished. So when the thousand years are finished, they will live again. And so they're dead for a thousand years. So the earth is desolate, and the wicked are dead, and Satan is bound on this earth, while the righteous are in heaven. Well, what are the righteous doing in heaven? That's a good question. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> right? So what is happening in heaven for this thousand years? Right? Are we getting harp lessons? What are we doing up there Right? for a thousand years? Revelation 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is he that takes part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. And they shall be priests of God and of Messiah and shall reign with him a thousand years. So we'll reign with him for a thousand years as Kohanim, as Levites, as priests in heaven. Now, a common teaching on this, a more popular teaching on the thousand years is that the Lord returns and then we reign here on earth with him, that he puts us over cities and over the countries, right? and all of a sudden everybody becomes good because the devil's bound up and so he's not being, they're not being tempted and we're not being tempted, they all of a sudden become good. Right? Well, then who tempted the devil that he became bad, right? That, that we can't be bad without the devil, right? Um, and, and so we're reigning, I mean, like, who would want to reign over this earth, right? I mean. Would you want Detroit? I mean, what city would you want, right? You, know, you want New Jersey, right? Who would want that, right? Don't give me that. You know, reigning over these people, why would you? And so all of a sudden now we're able to live for a thousand years where we couldn't even live a hundred years before. And so now all of a sudden we're living a thousand years. Must be because he's taking us out to Taco Bell or something like that, right? So the world just continues on and he's reigning here on this earth and we're reigning with him, right? And, and so things just continuing on, right? And then all of a sudden everyone becomes bad again. It really doesn't make sense. 
Why do you need to come? And why, why, you know, it doesn't make sense. And all the text that it leaves out. When does the earth become desolate? When does the earth fill from one end of the earth to, with, with the dead bodies? And why does it say then we go up to meet him in the, in the clouds and, and that he's going to take us to the mansions with him? But no, we're in heaven with him, reigning in heaven as Kohanim and Levites. Well, what are the Kohanim and Levites? What was their position? What was their judge? What was their job? Often as judges. Right? If you had a problem, you brought your problem to Moses and, and to the Levites. My neighbor did this. Uh, my ox fell into his hole, and so he needs to pay me back. Now, who was it that determined whether or not you had leprosy or didn't have leprosy? Your wall needs to get knocked down or not, or you need to go and do this and offer this offering? It was the Levites. It was the Kohanim. It was the priests acting as judges for the people. And so we reign there as judges with him. That's what the text then says. Revelation 20, still verse 4. I saw thrones and they that sat on them and judgment was committed to them. So what are we judging? If we're there judging, we're sitting on thrones, reigning with him in heaven, what are we judging? Well, that's a good question. I'm glad you asked that. The Bible's going to tell us. And I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Do you not know, the second Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 22 and 3, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? Well, when does that take place? Other than when we're reigning with him for a thousand years as judges, as Kohanim, as Levites. We're judging the world. God has already judged the world. He prejudged and then he came back with his reward and he destroyed the wicked with the brightness of his coming and he determined those who were righteous and he raised them from the dead and those that were alive and remain who were following the Lamb he took up to meet in heaven. He's already judged. So what does he need us to judge for? Well, we think about our court system here in the United States. What are we often, in most uh, cases, what are we allowed in our court system here in the United States? We're allowed to be judged by who? Jury. Right, what do we call that? of our peers. Right? We, are, we have a right to be judged by people who are like us. Judged by our peers. Right? And so even after a judgment is set and the judgment is decided, what happens then often? The person is allowed an appeal. Exactly. Well, who's more just, God or the United States? God, that's right. And so God allows this kind of an appeal process to take place. He allows us to look over his record books. And so for a thousand years, we look over what God has judged. And we would want to, wouldn't we? Well, you think Stephen's going to want to know what on earth Paul's doing there? Last time he saw Paul, he was there with the guy stoning him. <laughs> How did he get up here? And so God will show him and allow him to look over the record books himself. And Stephen say, well, okay, good. And if Aunt Sally's not there, wouldn't you want to know why Aunt Sally's not there? So he's going to let us go over the record books. God says, come, let us reason together. He doesn't want us to just believe him in, with, with blind faith that his judgment was right. That could form doubt into the future. But he says, no, come and look. This is how I judged and this is why I judged. You look it over, you do an audit, 
You look over the records and you see if I made any mistakes. You look it over for me throughout the whole time. Check out all the books. We'll open up the books. Remember we did the sermon on the books, right? And you can see that again if you missed it on shalomadventure.com. The book of tears, the book of life, the book of remembrance, right? The different books. You look over these books. You look at all the opportunities I gave them. You look at all the miracles, you look at all the events, you look at the angels moving here, you see all behind the scenes. You look at their heart, you look at their motives, you look at their mind, you look at their thoughts. And now you determine whether I judged rightly or wrongly. And so God in his great love and fairness and justice allows us to enter into the judgment process with him. That's a very loving God. I think that's very beautiful, as the character of God, not sitting up there as some dictator, but allowing us to come and sit on his throne with him, to sit at the right hand of the Father with him, to sit behind him and to judge with him, and to look over the record books with him. He's got he's nothing to fear. And then the scriptures, I should have put the scripture up in Revelation, it says, and we will say, True and righteous are your ways, Lord, O God Almighty. Right? So we'll agree with him. You were right, you were just, you're true. Your ways, your justice, your judgments are right. We'll agree with him, of course, because he's always right, but he lets us see it. And not only to judge other people's records, but I believe he'll allow us to see our own. God, why'd you allow me to go through that? Why'd you give me those parents? Why'd you allow that to happen to me? Why'd you allow that to happen to my loved one? Why'd you allow that sickness? Why'd you allow that death? Why'd you allow that tragedy? Why'd you allow that loss? Why'd you allow that pain? And God will have an opportunity to show us all the things that happen behind the scenes. And all the things that happened as a result of that that helped lead us and others towards heaven. And I believe after that process, we'll look at that and say, you know what, God? If I had it to do all over again, if that's what it took to get me and those others here, I won't, wouldn't change a thing. And so again, God allows us to get all those whys out of the way during the thousand years so we can enter into eternity praising him, thanking him, and worshiping him without any doubts. So doubt cannot creep up ever again. So questioning of God's fairness and justice and righteousness will never creep up again. There'll be no more opportunity for another Satan because he's opened it all up, he's explained it all, he's shown it all. And the record books will testify that he is right, that he is good, that he is just. I think that's a very loving God. And it matches up with all these scriptures. So during the millennium, during the thousand years, the righteous will be in heaven judging, looking over the books, judging the world, judging even the angels. Revelation 20, verse 5, but the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. 
Okay, so then what happens when the thousand years are finished? They live not again, and the wicked are raised. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations. How can he deceive the nations? Because the thousand years are up, and they live not again until the thousand years were over, and so they are raised in that second resurrection. So this is the second resurrection. The first resurrection was at the beginning, and blessed and holy that those who took part in the first resurrection. And then the second resurrection, at the end of the thousand years, the resurrection of damnation, the wicked are raised in that resurrection. And so that's, that Satan is now loosed. Again, probably not physical change, but he now has someone to go tempt again. He has someone to now go and have follow him again. And so he's loosed from his situation of laying around doing nothing on a desolate earth. And what does he do? He gathers them together to battle. And so he has all his wicked dead from down through the ages, Cain and Nimrod and Hitler and Napoleon and all down through the ages, these master generals, and he's gathering them together for the last great battle. Who are they going to battle? That's a good question. I'm glad you asked. Now I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So the new Jerusalem is coming down. And it's coming down from heaven as a bride. What is it that makes the new Jerusalem like a bride? What makes it beautiful like a bride? Is it the pearly gates? Is it the golden streets? Is it the shiny walls? What is it about the new Jerusalem that makes it the bride? Purity, more than purity. Righteousness. righteousness. What is it that makes it pure and righteous? What is pure and righteous? About gold streets and they're shiny? They're clean? There's no fingerprints? What is it that's so wonderful about this city? It's white? If you like white. What? The saints, exactly. It's the saints inside the city. Right? If it's just an empty city, it doesn't matter what it's made out of. But remember, we were taken to the mansions he's preparing for us. We were taken to his city. And he's bringing us back at the end of the thousand years. So the new Jerusalem is coming down and we're inside it as the bride, as God's bride. And so we come down and it continues and says that. Right, so at the second, so the end of the thousand years is kicked off by the second resurrection, the wicked are raised, and the third coming of the Lord, the city descending. And Yeshua comes down, Yeshua descends, and he lands on the Mount of Olives, and he splits the Mount of Olives and flattens it out, makes a huge landing plane for the new Jerusalem to come down and settle down over Jerusalem, over Israel, and over a whole lot more territory as the new Jerusalem comes down with we inside it. 
Satan's outside gathering his forces, gathering the evil down through the ages, lying to them, probably telling them, I raised you from the dead. I've got power. Look at that city. We deserve that city. We have enough might. There's only a few inside. Look at how many we are. And let's go and attack the city. And they all gather around him, gather around the city for battle. thus showing their real heart, thus showing their true color. The same jealousy that they went into the grave with, the same envy and selfishness that they went into the grave with, oh, they might have looked very nice on the outward. We might have been very pious. We might have been very religious. But our true colors will be revealed as we come up out of the grave in which resurrection we come out of, on what side we're on. And the wicked will come up again with those same sinful feelings and desires, and they'll want the city, and they'll surround the city and go and follow the devil to do battle. They went up on the breath of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Right, so the New Jerusalem, the beloved city. What makes it beloved? Pearl gates? Streets of gold? No. What makes it beloved is the camp of the saints. It's the house of the saints. It's the home of the saints. It's where we've been for a thousand years judging with him. It's the mansions that he's prepared for us, that he's brought us to so that we will be with him. And so they go up on the, on the breath of the earth, surrounding the camp of the saints, going to do battle against it. And thus they judge themselves. They've been judged by God. They've been judged by us. And now they are judging themselves. Showing what would happen if they were given even another opportunity. And they blow it all over again. They're not there pleading, oh, forgive us. Oh, we blew it. We were stupid. Oh, look at that beautiful city. Please let us inside. Give us forgiveness now. No, they go up on the breath of the earth, surround the city to make war on it. And if we had any doubt in our mind about Aunt Sally, and we look out those over the walls, and we see her in that crowd, it will remove all doubt for eternity. God is very thorough before he works the second death. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Ezekiel 28, Therefore I brought fire from the midst of you, and it devoured you. The last text is talking about all that are on the earth going against the city, Fire coming down from God out of heaven, devouring him. This text is specifically in context, Ezekiel 28, about the devil himself. Fire devouring him. Revelation 20, verse 10. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. Same chapter, verse 14. Death and death and Hades were cast into the fire. This is the second death, the final death, the complete death, 
So they died sometime in the past, like Cain, or they died at the brightness of his coming. There's their first death. Then they remain dead for a thousand years. Then they're resurrected in the second resurrection at the end of the thousand years. The resurrection of damnation. And then they receive, they, so they receive a second life. In order to have a second death, you had to have a second life. So God gives them a second life. And they're still the same and they go up on the breath of the earth and attack the city and fire comes down from God and devours them in the second death. Gives them their second death. And where do those texts fall into? If we're reigning on earth here for a thousand years, when does the earth become fire? When does this fire come down and devour them? When do they go up on the breath of the earth to conquer the city? doesn't make any sense. But here, everything fits one text after another in a logical sequence which matches up with, again, the sabbatical concept. And this is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So the book of life, again, Yom Kippur, the ultimate judgment. 2 Peter 3, verse 10. The elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. So as fire comes down from God out of heaven, burns them up on the breath of the earth, and turns this earth into one big molten mass of one lake of fire, the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. All right, when, when could that happen? If we're reigning on earth a thousand years, when's this earth burning up? When is the earth covered with corpses, not buried, not lamented, other than in understanding it this way? So this whole earth burns up. So all the graffiti, all the concrete, all the rubber tires, all the cars, all the phones, all the electronic gadgets, all the non-decomposing non items will all burn up. All the blacktop, all the garbage on the earth, all the plastic straws. There'll be no more plastic straws, right? They'll all get burned up, right? Turtles won't have to worry anymore about getting choked by a plastic straw coming after them, right? There'll be no more. It all burns up. The earth and all the works. Right? God has to get rid of all this garbage. He has to burn it all up. He has to destroy it all because we've just done such a good job of destroying God's earth. He's going to burn it all. He can't remake it. He can't redo it. He has to destroy it. He has to burn it all up. Make it into a molten mass, except for the New Jerusalem. Right? It's got fireproof walls. Right? Like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and, and uh, Azariah, we're inside the city, protected. And we see the glow. We see the fire outside. And it continues to burn until it's all burned up. And then back to Ezekiel 28, verse 18 and 18. And I turned you to ashes upon the earth. You have become a horror and shall be no more forever. You become ashes on the face of the earth. The fire burns up until all the fuel is burned, until all the plastic and rubber and concrete and blacktop and garbage and all the stuff is burned up. And the wicked are all burned up. 
and they become ashes. I like this text out of Malachi 3, verse 4. You shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. So all the fire burns and it just becomes ash. Ashes across the face of the earth. Now ashes become good fertilizer. And then out of those ashes begins eternity. Well, that begins eternity. And then out of those ashes, I saw a new heavens and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. So he's destroyed it all. And then from those city walls, we'll get to see creation all over again. I don't know if it'll take seven days to do it, but we'll get to watch it. We'll get to watch out of those ashes flowers and trees and animals created on the earth again. And then it'll open up the gates. A new heavens and a new earth. I think it's very interesting, way back in Revelation, he talks about a new earth, okay, and that's mentioned also in Isaiah, but also a new heaven mentioned in both those places. What do we need a new heaven for? God knew we were going to pollute the heavens. Look at all these satellite things floating around up there. He's got to destroy that too. Look at all the pollution flowing around there. He's got to destroy that also. He's got to make a new heavens and a new earth. So that way when we're flying along, we don't get hit by a satellite or something, right? We bump into a satellite, right? No one will be spying on us anymore, right? We don't have all these things watching every move we make. New heavens, new earth. Out of this, out of the dust, out of the ash. All things become new. Thus begins Sukkot. We've gone from Yom Kippur into the judgment, through the judgment, and then into rejoicing evermore in the new heavens and new earth, dwelling in booths with God's pleasure. Nevertheless, back to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, after he says the earth has been destroyed and be burned up, the text then continues and says, nevertheless, we according to his promise look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So Peter talks about the earth becoming a molten fire and then becoming a new earth. I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he dwelt with them. God moves his throne from wherever it is out there. He moves it with the new Jerusalem, and he dwells with us, and he moves the capital of the universe to this one fallen, dark, sinful planet that he has renewed as a testimony of his grace and his love and his power to redeem and his justice to judge and to deliver. What love God has for us. And they shall be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God and they shall see his face. Face to face with our Redeemer. No more through a cloud darkly, but we will get to see him and walk with him and talk with him. And there will be peace in the Middle East. <laughs> there will finally be eternal peace forever and ever and ever. And sin will not rise up its head ever again. Because justice has been done 
And God has revealed it all for us and for all the universe that he is just, that he is right, that he is fair. And we'll dwell in the new Jerusalem and in the new earth with God there with us, eating from the tree of life and drinking from the river of life that proceeds from the throne of God. And so as we prepare to pray, we've seen there's only two sides. We want to make sure we're on God's side. We don't want to follow the dragon and the beast. We want to follow the lamb. And so again, still if there's anything in our hearts and minds, any selfishness, any greed, any jealousy, any covetousness, let us surrender it to God in a moment when we pray. Secondly, if we read about him, he has sheep of other folds that he wants to bring in one fold, one shepherd. If you've been out just wandering on your own, he wants to bring you together into his family, on his truth, united in his truth. If there's some bitterness, unforgiveness, someone hurt you out somewhere, some leader, some rabbi, someone, and God says, put it aside and come together, come under his fold. Wheat and the tares will grow together till the end, but come together, unite together, press together, pull together into his fold. And so if there's some hurt or some anger or some bitterness, surrender it before the Lord, leave it with him, and come into his fold, come under his banner, and unite with him and with his people. Thirdly, he calls us to witness to the world before he can come. God wants to use each one of us. He's given us all talents and gifts and abilities to use somehow in his service. And so if God's impressing your heart and mind, there's something more that he's called you to do. Some area more, maybe someone else to reach, maybe just one other person, maybe just placing some person on your mind or some activity or some ministry or somehow or another, he wants to use you in his fold to witness to the world around us. In a moment when we pray, say, God, I'm willing, use me. Here I am. Open the doors and use this talent you've blessed me with. If you've seen in the scriptures we've looked at tonight, God's love and mercy and goodness in that he opens himself up to us, that he allows us to audit his books, to double check him, to explain to us everything that's happened on this earth in our lives and in the lives of others. And if you just appreciate that and are thankful for that, that he's blocked off a time period for us to do that. In a moment when we pray, if you just want to thank him and praise him for giving us a time where we can sit with him and ask all our whys and have it all answered. I'll help you to be able to put it off for a little time knowing you've got a thousand years to work that out with him. Then in a moment when we pray, you can thank him for that and release the whys to him and 
set it off at least for a little time, knowing that he will open the books and show it all to us. And also reveal what happened to our loved one, this one, that one. And let us enter into that process. Also, we can be thankful that he's going to let this earth experience its rest. And we can be thankful that he's going to create a new heavens and new earth. Make up for the things that we've done to destroy this earth as well, individually and corporately. And so if you want to thank him for the promise of that, new heavens and new earth, then a moment when we pray, you can thank him and praise him and lay hold of that promise that you'll be able to be there and partake of it because of the sacrifice of the Lamb, because of his forgiveness, because of his righteousness. So if any of those areas apply to you, any sin you need to be forgiven of and released and get over, if you're walking with the devil and you need to turn and follow the Lord, then the moment we pray, get it right with God. Let us pray together. Our Lord and our God, King of the universe, we do thank you and praise you. We thank you for your justice. We thank you that you know all things. And thank you that you love us. And you count us worthy as intelligent beings that you've created to look into your mysteries and to enter into sitting at your throne and enter into the judgment with you. Thank you for your love and your sequence. Thank you for laying everything out in, in your word. Thank you for being willing to explain it all to us and to answer all our whys. And thank you for giving a time that all doubt can be removed and that we can rejoice forever and ever in heaven with you. If there's any sins on our record still now, Lord, forgive it and cleanse it. Reveal it and convict us. Give us the gift of repentance. Thank you, Yeshua, for being the lamb, for paying the price for us, to, for experiencing the second death for us. Thank you for the promise of heaven. In Yeshua's holy name, amen.